History happened everywhere. The verdict. Out of office. This is our after-show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, Achievement in Taiwan During the Great War. That's 1914 to 1918. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out, or else there will be spoilers ahead. I don't know what's happened with this mic. Uh, just make it... I'll put it in a different position. I'm going to keep on screwing it around. <laughs> ah, I think that's it. <laughs> Is that better? Please say yes, it's better. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir and I'm here in the HHE studio with the Thai one to my Thai lost. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Ah, I thought you were a Thai too. <laughs> <laughs> and we are joined, as ever, by the distinguished Duke of Discipline. It's the judge himself. It's Mr. Paul Dursley. Good evening, Ryan and Peter. Good evening. Good evening. Now, Peter, for the last week, I've been busy dusting off all the awards we've won for the show, and I've forgotten absolutely everything we said during the last episode. That's so, a big job. Would you, <laughs> you must have a memory span even less than a goldfish the time it would take to dust your awards. <laughs> so would you mind reminding me what we talked about in, let's say, 60 seconds? No problem. When would you like me to start? Do it now. In a special out-of-office joint episode, we travel to the Republic of China, also known as Taiwan, a small-ish island and economic powerhouse of Southeast Asia, famous for producing microchips. We discuss the tricky legacy of achievement during the time of Japanese rule, discovering some of the good things that were done for not necessarily good reasons. We learn about the architect who won a competition to build the presidential palace despite coming second, and the change in culture that led to the decline of footbinding for women. And we also met the remarkable school teacher who roamed among the headhunters on her days off, documenting the their lives and culture, and eventually publishing a book about her experiences. What an achievement. That was last week's episode done. Summarised nicely, nice one, son. Now we're over to a young Dursley who's going to tell you what he thought of me. He'll take you apart without any care. He's the lovely Paul Dursley. The lovely Paul Dursley. Ah, yes. Oh, I remember now. There were facts, there was stories, there was beer. I very much enjoyed it, Peter, but it matters not what I think. We are here for the opinion of just one man. So, Judge Dursley, why don't you get us started and tell us your thoughts on the episode? Are you going to decorate us with medals and trophies, or will there just be Hell Taipei? Oh. <sighs> It's like to pay. I know it will a little bit like it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, that's a positive start. Peter. I would say so. That's, it. that's a, the sound he always makes when he's really enjoyed an episode. <laughs> it was a bit listy, I thought. Too much information for you. Too much gripping stories and fascinating facts. We'll come to that. Okay. Well, blimey. That does not bode well for us, Peter. It does not, but it is worth mentioning. It was a short episode, wasn't it, Ryan? We are out of office. We are off doing fun and exciting things. So I've, I wonder if we want to talk about the fact that we did it together. It was a joint episode, which we don't normally do. No, in fact, this is our first ever joint episode. Yes. So I, I think it's important to set out our stall and say this. We're going to be judged jointly on this, correct? And so how, 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 how is the failure going to be apportioned? That, I think that's your call, Judge. 
But, but do you both get the grade or do you get half of the grade each? I guess that's your call, Judge. Oh, okay. So you, you <laughs> could get... What's half a D? B? <laughs> I thought... I was thinking more H. H. <laughs> I don't think if you half a D, you get an H. You get an N and a U, I think. <laughs> a B is two Ds together, isn't it? Yeah. Well, look, so I made a little tasteless joke, if you'll forgive the pun, about Janet B. McGovern acting like Uber Eats or Deliveroo or DoorDash or ah, one yes. of those food delivery services. So the story was she was being carried across a river on the back of a kind of guide. On her way to some headhunters. But of course, they're headhunters, not cannibals, and therefore eating her was not part of their plan had they intended to do her ill will. Good point. Oh dear, you've just lost a point because that was the only time I laughed in the whole episode. But I did do some research around headhunting. So as you rightly said, headhunting was a common practice uh, among Taiwanese Aborigines. Uh, In fact, all of the tribes practiced it, except for one, the Yami people, uh, who were isolated on a tiny little island called Orchid Island. And so I guess it was just full of orchids. It's too nice. Too nice to headhunt. In my mind, it's like the Smurfs. (laughs) The Strumpfs. But I do want to tell you about a Han Chinese man called Wu Feng. He lived among the Aborigines in the 18th century, right? And he was there to try and improve their lives. In 1722, while living with the Cao people, he convinced them to stop hunting heads. And basically, he told them that it was heartless of them to kill these innocent people and just should not be tolerated going forward. He suggested instead, right? Because they still had the urge. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) Yeah. That uh, that what they do is they use their 40 heads on their trophy cabinet and use those one every year as the sacrifice. Now, the cow agreed to this proposal and they didn't hunt any heads for the next 40 years using one of these heads every year until eventually the stockpile ran out. <laughs> We're out of heads, yeah, everyone. So you could sort yeah. of see this coming, couldn't you? Yeah. And so the tribe started to grow eager to resume <laughs> hunting, right? Because they, they didn't have any more heads left. And so, determined to persuade them to stop, Wu Feng said to them, your killing custom should not be tolerated. I have already made it clear at the beginning that I will help you tackle this problem. So, Tomorrow morning, someone wearing red clothes and a cap will pass by the village. You can kill him and get his skull, but you must not kill other people or else the gods will get angry and punish you. And sure enough, on the next day, August 10th, 1769, a man with red clothes and a cap passed by the village and the tribe went crazy. They eagerly shot this guy full of arrows. Shouting and jumping for joy, the hunters approached the body to cut off his head, only to find that that person was, and this won't surprise you, (laughs) B. Wu Feng. No! Yeah, that's right. It was said that as Wu closed his eyes, blood continued to spurt out of his body. (laughs) (laughs) The headhunters were overcome with sadness, though, and the story goes that even the trees all over the mountains let out a deep wail for him. To commemorate Wu's heroic sacrifice, the local people set up temples to hold memorial ceremonies for him, vowing to follow his words and never hunted human heads anymore. And later, a gigantic bronze statue of Wu riding a horse was erected, and two banyan trees were planted, and a square stone tablet was set up, which was carved with the words, Righteous Man Wu Sacrifices His Life Here. So did the statue have a head? (laughs) 
It's detachable. This has got a zip round it. <laughs> and to this day, on August 10th, visitors still go to the Wu Feng Temple and burn incense in worship of him. How about that? The ultimate sacrifice for your principles. That's remarkable. You have to admire a dude. So, Ryan, there was something I didn't bring in because it was A, way out of our time period, and B, I didn't really have much about it, but I wanted to share it because it just made me laugh. Please so do. The, you know the Dutch were in control of Taiwan for a while? Yeah. Then they built a place called Fort Zeelandia, which was their main fort. But apparently in 1654, yeah. Fort Zeelandia was afflicted by a swarm of locusts, then a plague that killed thousands of people, then an earthquake... <laughs> What, one after the other? Yeah, I guess. I'm not sure the exact time scale, but uh, that was a rough year for Fort Zealandia. Jolly bad luck. I mean, some might say biblically bad luck. It does seem biblical, doesn't it? I'm what, a plague of what? A plague, the plague. A plague of the oh, plague. Because like, <laughs> they'd already had a plague of locusts. And then a plague of plague. Well, I have some news about plague as well. Go on. Because during the episode, you said that when the Japanese were there in their colonial period, that they brought new medicine in and yeah, helped hygiene cure and the plague, you even mentioned. I did. Well, in 1919, there was a black plague outbreak, which saw the deaths of several hundred people due to the bubonic plague. And they think that this might be the case because a year before, in 1918, they had a huge typhoon and it was a huge disaster for the country. Hundreds of people dying. But this was just a year after three earthquakes (laughs) at the island. So Taipei is located near the intersection of several tectonic plates and is constantly at risk of earthquakes. In 1914, Taipei was struck by a major earthquake though, and it caused significant damage. Known as the Great Kanto Earthquake, or the Taisho Kanto Earthquake, it occurred at two in the afternoon, and it had a magnitude of 7.6 on the Richter scale. There is no such thing. So what is it then, Paul? It's the earthquake moment scale. What's that in Richter's? (laughs) Uh, Well, so Richter created a mathematical formula which included logarithms in it, which means, so for example, a a magnitude 7 earthquake is 10 times more than a magnitude 6, 100 times more than a magnitude 5, etc., etc. And it, it seemed to fit the data. But over time, as our measurements got better, empirically, and I can't remember whether it's the high end or the low end, the mathematical formulation did not work. The model failed at those ends. So they created a new model which effectively mirrored the Richter scale in the middle range, which was correct. And then there were modifications to it at either one or both ends. So technically, it's not the Richter scale, but in most earthquakes that are less than, I think, about nine, which is virtually all of them, that it's pretty close. But Richter is still used though, right? We hear about it on the news all the time. It shouldn't be. Oh. It's deprecated, so but it's one of it's one of those things that's always been there. Just because it's so familiar, that's why why news outlets use it. Uh, I guess. Yes, it's 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 like uh, you know when people say degrees centigrade. You see, that's pointless because the Fahrenheit scale is a centigrade scale. 
Wow, I feel like I've just got a, a lesson there in, in, in science. That's fantastic. Crash course in measurement. <laughs> Mensuration, it's called. Well, look, talking of a crash course, the earthquake that hit was 7.6 on the Richter scale or whatever the actual official amount is. And that is like releasing the energy of about 45 atomic bombs, the, like the ones dropped on Hiroshima. 45 of them. You'd notice that. that okay, okay, for reference, the Hiroshima bomb was 20 kilotons. So that's like releasing the energy of 45 20 kiloton atomic bombs. That's a precise measure. So why don't you just say 9,000 megatons or whatever the number is? <laughs> it was like a big explosion. A very big explosion. Big thing went bang. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so it's estimated that over 3,000 people were killed in Taipei and the surrounding areas as a result of this earthquake. Most of the buildings and the infrastructure in Taipei at the time were made of flammable materials, wood, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as one fire started, the whole city pretty much just burnt down. It destroyed entire neighbourhoods. So the Japanese colonial government responded. They sent in troops to help with the rescue and recovery efforts. Uh, they also provided financial aid to help rebuild the city. But today, Taipei is still at risk of earthquakes. September yes. 21st, 1999, the Chi Chi earthquake struck, also with a magnitude of 7.6 on the, don't mention the scale, <laughs> um, causing widespread damage, killed over 2,400 people. Earthquake Chi Chi, it sounds like a mad panda. <laughs> it does. Well, it was pretty mad. And they've got a very tall building in Taipei, haven't they? For how long? One must ask if this keeps happening. No, they're, they're, that, that, that's another interesting thing. They've got this building called Taipei 101, which has 101 floors. For a while, was the tallest building on Earth. And it was built in an earthquake zone. We may have mentioned this before. I can't, I can't remember. But basically, what happens at the top of this tower is an enormous metal sphere I think it may be filled with water. So it's an enormous mass about 1,500 foot up in the sky. With that enormous mass at the top, it actually makes it a lot easier and a lot steadier. So the centre of gravity is just at the very top, therefore it, it wobbles around more rather than falling over. But that mass, it, it also would give it time to sway. And so it would effectively break up the resonance because a lot of damage is done by the, the shaking that's incredible, isn't it? But it's it, it's one of those things that's counterintuitive, yeah. Like that somebody would come up with that design and then people agreed to it and then people built it and people moved into it. Yeah, somebody said, Why do you, how do you earthquake proof this? And they say, well, I've put a massive bag of water at the top. You'd be inclined to say, I'll be all right over there, yeah. actually. <laughs> that's a good fact. Uh, I would reward you uh, an A. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so Peter, um, I'm going to put our foot in the grade <laughs> and admit another error. Oh, no. This this is on my side this time, but because we're working together, you take that too. Oh, we stand and fall together. Yeah, well, look, so... I said that the Japanese used Taiwanese women as comfort girls uh, during World War One. That was not true. That was during World War Two instead. So not during our time period and just not true. So oh, they came back in the Second World War, I suppose. Yes. They definitely came back in the Second World War. Slightly different approach in the Second World War. Yes. Yeah. But talking of women, as we discussed in the episode, foot binding was the ancient Chinese practice, popular for over a thousand years, where infant girls would have all the bones of their feet broken 
broken, except for the heel, and then folded and then tightly wrapped with cloth to make them smaller and more delicate, which, as we said, was considered more attractive to men. So erotic, in fact, that the sight of these bindings was said to be enough to stir libidinous passions in men who were known to eat crushed almonds and even sip wine from between the deformed toes. Oh, God, that's disgusting. You're saying that because you're <laughs> drinking wine. <laughs> and so it's now considered a horrific cultural legacy, right? But some people, one person in particular, sees it as a romantic fashion trend. And this guy is David Ko. He's a Taiwanese surgeon, and he has spent the last 30 years collecting the tiny, colourful shoes that Chinese women wore during the thousand long years that they were forced to have their feet broken and bent in half. Ko says that footbinding was a romantic fashion that continues to inspire modern trends, and he points to the origin of high-heeled shoes as originating in China as a means of supporting women with bound feet. He's just trying to justify his obsession. Indeed. And despite facing some heavy criticism, Ko has published three books on the topic of foot binding, and he's exhibited some of his collection in Taiwan, China, Canada, and at the National Museum of Natural History in Washington. He describes his collection as an important aspect of China's cultural heritage, which many people view as a form of torture and a patriarchal practice that limited women's movements to satisfy men's desires. I would be one of those people. Oh yeah, it's it's like... You know, you you see you see people in court, and their defence is, you know, I was only looking at this right wing Nazi literature because I just wanted to understand what rubbish they were talking about. Well, that's that's interesting you say that because that was my initial thought when I read this, which is there are people, there are collectors of Nazi memorabilia, aren't there, from the Second World War? People who yes. seek out flags and Lemmy from Motorhead. That uh, really, he collects I Nazi so. memorabilia. Yeah. So where do you stand on that? It is history. It's undeniably history. I would say it's the same with the foot binding. It's as a historical practice. You can't just ignore it and pretend it never happened. It depends on whether you are doing it as an instructive thing or as a, a means of saying, actually, I quite like it. So if you had some handed down to you, would you keep them? What's the moral argument there? Because surely you should donate it to a museum for free and you should not benefit from this. You say that, but I'd like to benefit from it if at all possible. So thanks for the money, Grandad. <laughs> you take the money. Yeah, for sure. Even if it was Nazi gold. <laughs> Nazi gold now. <laughs> I'm not a Nazi. And it, and it is now on show in his private museum, along with all of the lions that he goes to South Africa to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> you people are bad and, and wrong. Uh, 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 and, and you've made a few thousand pounds out of it. That's the bit I want to focus on. <laughs> the bit where I make some money. <laughs> I don't know if we could use any of this. <laughs> I'm going to have to stretch my editing capacity to this. I agree. Let's move on. I want to talk a little bit about trains. I, I mentioned that they expanded the rail network and I wanted to talk about a particular railway line in Taiwan called the Alishan Forest Railway. Uh, but it was actually opened in 1912. So it was slightly too early for my time period. So I'm like, oh, darn Dang it. it. But I kept it for today. Okay. And this is a narrow gauge railway. So it's quite a little railway. Uh, and it runs from a place called Chai to the Alishan Mountains. And it, the reason they 
drove a train up a mountain basically it was because the they were doing logging they were logging cypress taiwan cypress trees okay. from the mountaintop and the train was to take the logs down the mountain a little tiny train that winds all the way up this mountain 71 kilometers 44 miles along it starts at 30 meters above sea level and it ends at 2451 meters above sea level so it goes really high really high up it's got a loop line a spiral route basically if you look at a map of it you know when you normally look at a railway line map it is a straight line or a slight bendy or a wiggly line yeah it doesn't tend to go up this one goes straight line for a while and then it's just like someone's just scribbled on the map because it loops round and round and round as it ascends the mountain oh so it doesn't go like just for it doesn't ascend like vertically. it doesn't go it straight goes... up it's not like no it, it <laughs> right, winds okay. its way up so you look at it on a map the line is hilarious because it looks like it's just scribble on it on the line and then it goes to to its destination but what's really impressive about it is it's still used today it's now a tourist railway line you can okay. get on this it's this old wooden trains it was originally steam but it's diesel now now and basically you can get on the train today the drivers have to get off the train to manually switch the track when they're changing directions (laughs) during the cherry blossom season which is march to may they uh, have a vintage steam train that runs once a week sounds awesome and they actually lent one of their trains to wales this year so i guess i I don't know where somewhere in wales there's one of these diesel trains pulling i guess a scenic railway do they do they work underwater (laughs) (laughs) well i guess they work in the rain that's for certain but that for a hundred years, this railways, these same little wooden trains running up this tiny track all the way up this mountain, thousands of meters high, yeah. it, and it's still running a hundred years later. And it's it looks like a really lovely place to visit. Well, I love the idea of cherry blossom season on a steam train. Right? Can you imagine? Come on! I really want to go. Uh, yeah, there's there's that, that's one way of climbing a mountain with a railway line, isn't it? There's another way which is called like a ladder railway. Uh, I've been on one actually. There aren't that many around. Oh, is this the one like funicular? This this one that i went on in ecuador was not a was not a funicular because it actually was a powered engine on a track but the track was not continuous it goes up and then stops then there's a point and it reverses but it reverses along a different track then it the points change again it reverses again and it it does that so it's like you know road winding up the side of a hill with very sharp corners well, you can't do that with a train, but you can overrun and then have a point to go up a different track. It's oh. a different way of solving the problem. It's a, it's around a place called the Devil's Nose. <laughs> Devil's <laughs> Nose, nice. Honestly, the ingenuity of humanity is quite incredible. Yeah, because I couldn't solve any of those problems. No, I just want one of those ones where you push the bar up and down and it pushes you along the track. Oh, you know, like those I love one movies. of those. Old school silent movie railroad. The Harold Lloyd thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have come to the end of the line, Peter. It's time for us both to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. Is this dock big enough for the both of us? It definitely is. All right, get up and shove over. I always knew you had a big dock. Get out, get out of the way. Stop, you're touching you're, my foot. Just, oh, don't, oh, you're rubbing. Silence! Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Uh, yes, I am. Then will us defendants please rise? I will, but I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do it All right, well. get, up, get out of the way. Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on factual content. Ugh. I could have done with a bit more. 
Okay. Uh, although, although the facts that were there were a bit listicles. We've never been called listicles before. We have not. Uh, you, you know, it's a portmanteau of list and article. A listicle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, may I then have your grade for factual content? Okay, I'm going to give you, for your listicles, a C. A C? That's good. I'll have the A, you have the C. Yeah. Wait, no. <laughs> okay, uh, Your Honour, uh, may we now ask for your verdict on entertainment value. Were you entertained by this? Well, I did laugh twice. Record. That sounds entertaining. Ah, uh, but one of those I was told to disregard. Ah. <laughs> uh, because it was factually incorrect and it was even too tasteless for you. Yep. So I shall give it a B minus. I'm happy with a B minus. I'll take that. I'm happy too. I know it's low for you, but that's <laughs> high for me. <laughs> so I'll take it. All right. And then uh, our final category, Judge Dursley, the Dursley factor. Did this tickle your bones? I'm afraid it didn't, mm. to be truly honest. You know, sometimes you listen to one and you think, oh, that's really good. And sometimes you listen to one and you don't think that. I, I like to think it's because we did it together. I think Pete dragged me down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you think so? Oh, OK. Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to give you a D plus. That's not good. That's not good at all. It's been a downward trajectory yeah. since I started hanging out with you. <laughs> <laughs> and so we reach the final verdict. Yes. Peter, Ryan, before <laughs> the judge passes his verdict, you have an opportunity to enter a plea. If you choose to do so, please make that plea now. It's I was going to say, you know, I don't know what you were saying. My bits was, were really good. I would find it hilarious. I tried really hard and down. he was poor. <laughs> uh, did you practice that? <laughs> The defendants stand before you, all pleaded out. Have you reached a verdict? Yes, I have. In which case, I would ask most respectfully for your ruling. So, gentlemen, as this was a joint effort, you are both culpable for the episode. Okay. However, I do not necessarily think the degree of culpability is the same for both of you. Okay. So I am going to award each of you a grade. Oh. <laughs> Which would be based on the sentence if it were a normal court. Okay, that seems fair. So, Mr. Goddard, would you please stand? Yes, Your Honour, sir. For your efforts on this rather middling episode, I give you a C. That is middling. I'm not going to say anything, no, it'll only get worse for me. Good luck, Ryan. <laughs> now sit down and stand up, Mr. Weir. Yes, Your Honour. Now, where should I start here? The interesting thing as a point of law that I have to look at is, did Peter bring up your grade or did you bring down Peter's grade? <laughs> and so on reflection, I have decided to dock you one point. So I will give you Ryan a C minus. Oh, well, that's still better than I was expecting. Because <laughs> of that lie you started with. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Your Honour. My pleasure. 
Okay, well, look, there you go. That was the show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on the show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. And you never know, you could even end up featured on a future show. That's right. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation really helps us bring the show to new listeners. And if you're on the social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, even Mastodon, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert every time we post any of our trivia, tidbits, news, photos from the show, pictures, comments. We do all sorts of things. We do. And we're going to be back again soon with our next episode, episode 69, Easy Does It in North America in 10,000 BCE. Oh, yes. I forgot about that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. But in the meantime, a huge thank you to the wonderful, lovely, cuddly judge himself. Thank you, Paul. That's my pleasure. And I hope you get back to normal next week. Understood. (laughs) And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... There, there is also one thing I want to say. I lied earlier. There were two points where I laughed. One, one was the Uber joke, which you're not allowed to laugh at. And the second one was drive-by namings. Yes, that was very good. Now, I thought that was really good. And it got me thinking, what are the other, any other drive-by namings? Do you know some? No, that's the whole point. I, was ah, <laughs> I thought that, that sounded like you were readying us for a quiz how about the island that's in the south atlantic that was drive-by named wasn't it bouvet island bouvet island it moved around it did did, oh yes they named it they couldn't get on it that was different that's like a drive-by where you stop and (laughs) you get out but you don't do anything that you get back in the car and drive on a little bit <laughs> I, I suppose uh, you know during the age of discovery there were lots of drive-by namings uh, you know the french drove past it and called it one thing the british drove past it and called another thing mm. and then the dutch went there and took it and that's why it's called new zealand well they didn't actually land on new zealand they were it's called new zealand which is a uh well it's a danish name in fact i think they were wise to not stop though because the locals did have form in terms of murdering pretty much anybody who landed on the island removing heads that's the way to do it I think drive by and go oh that looks nasty Uh, unless you happen to be a white Dutch god (laughs) that does help oh dear god this isn't going very well is it